Hello, everyone, and welcome to another brand new episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. And by the title of this, you might think um, that we are going after all of the Barbell Medicine members, <laughs> and you're probably familiar them with, uh, with them at this point because we've had, I think, two or three of them already on, and maybe we're deliberately going after them, maybe not. But what I can say is they have an absolutely incredible team, and we really want to amplify all of their messages and voices because it aligns with ours quite clearly and quite easily. So um, before we get into that, we want to make sure that if you are um, a listener of the podcast and want to stay up to date with whatever's going on, then make sure you're signed up for the mailing list. And to sweeten the deal, we've now included a free template on that mailing list, which has um, training based on the American College of Sports Medicine's guidelines, including cardiovascular exercise, strength training, stuff like that. So if you want to stay in the loop and get a free template, make sure to sign up for the mailing list. And now let's get into this episode. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, everyone, to another episode. And today with us, we have Leah Lutz. Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that. You can correct me. Um, You're she super has close. A, what is it? Leah. Leah? Okay. Yes, so not Leah. Leah, Leah Lutz. Yes. Got it. All right. Sorry about that. No. Um, so she has actually a really interesting story. So she was, uh, and she can clarify on this and expand on this a little bit later, but she was a former teacher, I believe, and now is a strength coach with Barbell Medicine who also has um, an interest in cooking. So has some cooking classes as well, which is really unique. Um, she also has a personal weight loss journey of about 130 pounds, which kind of joins uh, Jason and I, except uh, it seems that her loss is about the total of ours combined. So <laughs> absolutely fantastic. Um, she's also a member of the USAPL, which is Powerlifting Federation, national team, and an international medalist. And she recently competed at USAPL Raw Nationals, um, squatting 346 pounds, which is a new American record, benching 203 pounds, which is also a new American record, and deadlifting 352 pounds. So now let's get me out of the way. Welcome, Leah. Hello. Leah. Glad Leah, to sorry. be here. Leah. No, no, no. It's fine. You're winning. Because at, it was a really big deal at nationals because the whole for two days they pronounced my name as Leia Lutz, and uh, <laughs> that's about as wrong as you can get my name. <laughs> yeah, I think it has to do with the Star Wars effect because everyone it remembers does. like Princess Leia, so that's what everyone knows. Exactly. And when I was a kid, I hated being called Princess Leia. Now you can call me a princess, and I'm fine. I've accepted that. That's, <laughs> that's totally acceptable. But yes. <laughs> yeah. So welcome to the podcast. Do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, your past, and what you currently do? Yes, I'm glad to be here. So again, Leah, I am right off of USAPL Nationals, so I'm obviously a power lifter. As you mentioned, I was a teacher. I was a teacher for about 15 years. And during that time, there was a little bit of an overlap when I began coaching on the side and eventually for barbell medicine. But uh, so I've been coaching for about eight, seven, eight years now um, and worked my way into a full-time job as a coach, a career change completely happened about four years ago. Um, 
although I will, like I was thinking about this a little bit and I definitely was working two full-time jobs there for a while as I tried to make that commitment to leave teaching. Cause I was teaching for about 15 years. Absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. There's so much I love about teaching. So on the one hand, it wasn't an easy switch, but I absolutely love coaching as well. Um, I also do a lot of the administrative work for barbell medicine. So if people are familiar with it, um, another part of my job is also just making sure a lot of things run well. Uh, I've been with the company since close to its start, not the very start, but very close. Wow. So yeah, <laughs> I've been around for a while. I think I was, I, yeah, what- other than Jordan, I'm the second longest standing barbell medicine <laughs> person. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. What did you teach when you were teaching? Mainly middle school, and I taught a lot of English, some social studies, but quite a bit of English. And then eventually I worked into teacher training and curriculum development as well. So I had a lot. uh, That might have been what motivated a little bit of this clarity as I worked with more and more teachers and coaching in that aspect. I think that clarified for me that I really did love that. And while I love classroom teaching and there are parts of it that I miss, I love being able to work with individuals as well in my new job. And then, like you mentioned, I did go to cooking school. Um, that was over 20 years ago, which feels like <laughs> it's tough to say. But uh, yes, yeah, so over 20 <laughs> years ago, I went to cooking school. Absolutely love that. That's been a passion of mine. And it was really exciting for me to find ways to bring that into my career now so that now I'm teaching, coaching, and able to help people with cooking and nutrition. So I love the way it's all kind of come together, really within the last couple of years. I was about to mention, there's probably some similarities or some sort of carryover from teaching, and then I guess teaching other teachers into coaching. So um, yes. there's definitely some skill carryover there, it sounds like. How was that transition for you? Yeah, so in a lot of ways, it was pretty seamless because you're absolutely correct. There's so much that's similar. A lot of people also ask me about how they get into coaching or how I did this. And without a doubt, I came, teaching gave me that skill set in working with people, understanding them, being able to think about not just what you wanted people to learn or to know, but how they were going to learn that and understand it and make it their own. So I think those are some of the really important things that help to make the transfer uh, make a lot of sense. Um, There was some um, insecurity and some hesitation, of course, when you go from something that you've done for 15 years and, you know, Mm -hmm. honestly, that done pretty well at, and then you move into something that's pretty different. And coaching adults, um, even though I had done teacher training, I do think that helped. But um, wondering at the beginning, you know, was I really prepared to do this, but understanding that a huge part of coaching, it's not the only part, you have to understand training and programming and mechanics and all that. But a huge part of it is understanding people and understanding how people learn things and can learn new habits and skills. So I think that made it very, very doable. Yeah, you obviously have a wealth of experience when it comes to coaching and kind of those interpersonal skills that goes into that. And we'll touch on that later in this podcast. So make sure you guys stay tuned and not just tune off after 10 minutes. (laughs) But uh, let's get a little bit into preventive medicine because we are the preventive medicine podcast. So the standard question we have for kind of everyone, just because there's like different perspectives on this, people think a little bit differently is what does preventive medicine mean to you? Yes, this is a good question. And I don't know if my thoughts on this... um, might be a little bit different because I'm not a medical provider, right? So I was kind of trying to think about this a little bit differently. I, so as from the perspective of a coach and then as someone who 
you know, uses medical <laughs> services, I was trying to think through this. And um, since part of my job is helping to bridge the gap between medicine and people who are interested in improving their health and fitness, I do think the idea of preventative medicine is very, very important. And people hear that and they start thinking about things like nutrition and exercise, and then even other aspects of health that sometimes they don't think about, but they should. And that would be things like stress management and sleep and just lifestyle management. When I, so when I think of preventative medicine, it should include all of those things. And so I love being able to help people with those. But then this question also made me think about one of the problems that I see when people think about preventative medicine. And I think that's over assuming the idea and not respecting the fact that for lack of a better word, like medicine is still medicine. So we can't prevent everything is what I mean by that. Right. And we can get kind of caught up in that in our pursuit of health and fitness and uh, I've had a little bit of experience with that personally too. And so, you know, when someone, we, we can, I want to help people understand that preventative medicine is important and I want to help them with that, but they still need medicine. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. Uh, my clearest example of that was I've had a lot of trouble over the last few years with severe iron deficiency anemia. And mm-hmm. It is not an easy fix. It was, I have had lots of iron infusions and um, a number of interventions that had to take place in order to fix that. But this always makes me think of that because the number of people that said to me, well, what can you do to change your diet in order to fix this? And there was no easy dietary change for me to fix that problem. But people are very conditioned to think that we just have an easy fix versus sometimes we really need that medical intervention. So that's my kind of like both sides of that, <laughs> that you idea. You absolutely right? hit the nail on the head with that statement. And I think that's a perfect example as well, where you're trying to do everything that's in your control. And then sometimes stuff still happens. Life still happens. You can't control everything. And that's an absolutely beautiful perspective because it's kind of acknowledging both sides where you can, you still have a lot of control over what you do in your life, but mm-hmm. over the things that you don't have control over, let's just say an accident happens, whatnot, then there still is modern medicine, which is pretty damn good at doing what it does at the <laughs> point and we're only going to continue to get better so um, if we can kind of help more people take more control of their life and then Mm -hmm. let medicine do the rest then I think we'll be in a little bit of better place and we absolutely love uh, asking this question to everyone whether they're a physician whatever position they're at because there's so many different perspectives and so many different life experiences like that you shared thank you for that Um, that just kind of add perspective and help people understand that it's more of this large picture versus just um, exercise, nutrition, and maybe going to the doctor to get your blood pressure checked. Exactly. (laughs) So moving on from that, I think one of the things that I really wanted to ask you about is this tremendous weight loss and kind of um, how that worked in with powerlifting. Did you start the weight loss with powerlifting? How did that go? Yes. Very good question. And it was fun for me to have to like think back about the specifics because on the one hand, um, I mean, I have a lot of memories about this, of course, and a lot of experiences. And on the one hand, it seems like it was very long ago. And then on the other hand, it seems like it wasn't. So I had to go back and actually figure out a little bit about this. And it was about 12 years ago now, 13 years ago, that I was my highest body weight ever. And that would have been about 265 pounds. And I was at that point very, very desperate for change. Um, as I'm sure 
many people listening to this would understand. This was not for lack of understanding that I had a problem. (laughs) Um, I knew that full well. And it was actually very overwhelming to know that I was not successful in losing weight and keeping it off. And I had tried just about everything that I could think of. Um, If you could name a diet, I had probably tried it. And I had probably lost some weight on it and then regained more. Um, I had tried going to the gym that, you know, tried couch to 5k programs, all of those things. Um, but really was feeling like there was nothing that I could do. It seemed really, really hopeless, but it was definitely affecting more and more of my life. And as I saw that I was kind of like allowing my life to get smaller because of it, turning down invitations, worrying about how hard it was to walk on the beach, you know, the difficulty of getting down the middle aisle of an airplane, sitting in a restaurant, like anyone who's been that size knows that those are, they become more and more of your daily thought. And that was, I hated that. (laughs) So I, um, at one point after kind of like several of those experiences came together and one of them was increased business travel, honestly, like that just kind of kept it in my mind more and more. Um, I said, I have to do something. I think I have to do something drastic and kind of extreme. I have to be willing to put more money, more time, more effort into this than I have to see if I can just fix this. Like it's, there's gotta be a way. So at that point I decided to join a CrossFit gym, which seemed like a a great, like extreme (laughs) choice Mm -hmm. to make, but it was a, it was an excellent choice. It was a fantastic local community. They were super supportive. There were times when I could not do the work that was there and they would go out and walk with me when I couldn't run or encourage me or modify things, check in with me afterwards. And I literally thought I was probably just going to keel over. And, um, but they they were always there to help me out. But in that I discovered very, very unbeknownst to me that I was rather strong <laughs> since lifting is a common part of CrossFit. And so I started lifting a lot more and it was very rewarding um, knowing that coming from a background of thinking and assuming that I was entirely unathletic, that I had zero athletic capability. And so this was just going to be a battle constantly in order to try to lose weight and get fit. Discovering that I could do this um, and was good at it and enjoyed it really helped to change my mindset. And I do think that's one of the things that was very important to this lifestyle, dietary and movement change was it was the social support, it was the consistency, but it was also having um, some of that positive feedback as well in realizing it wasn't as dire as I thought it was. So um, I kept losing weight um, and eventually got into some Olympic lifting. That's when my squat really took off. If you've done Olympic lifting, you know, your bench and your deadlift doesn't take Mm -hmm. off, (laughs) but my squat did. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, like this is pretty great. Like the first time I squatted 300 pounds, was like super thrilling. Um, And then I tore my rotator cuff and it was, yeah, it was pretty bad, Um, like really bad. And so I had surgery um, after putting it off for quite a while and had a surgical repair of that. And at that point, I hit another low because that was just a couple of years into this weight loss process. And I had made a lot of progress. I was under 200 pounds at that point. But to then have rotator cuff surgery and to face the recovery of that immediately brought all those fears and insecurities Mm -hmm. back. (laughs) You know, I was like, what I thought I had figured out, like, I can't do now. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was really worried and very um, upset. 
And it was at that point that I found Jordan Feigenbaum. And he was just beginning his nutrition coaching online. And so I hired him. We found each other on the internet. And I said, hey, this sounds kind of interesting. I'll give this a try. And um, so one of his early clients and he, if you don't know, Jordan Feigenbaum is who owns Barbell Medicine. So, you know, that's how that connection all came together. And so he helped me rehab from my surgery and to continue to lose weight. And I made... I had made a lot of dietary changes before in the couple of years before that um, in really simplifying my food choices and eating more whole foods, um, paying a lot more attention to the ingredients that I was using, coming from a culinary background and then making those changes. But when I started doing this with Jordan, uh, there were a lot of food fears and anxieties that we had to work through because I had been hardcore paleo for a while and convinced that there were a lot of foods that were very harmful for me. Um, so I remember when he was like, you got to try oatmeal. Like, it's going to be really good for you. It's like, <laughs> I cannot eat oatmeal. I will immediately regain weight. I cannot. And he was like, you're not going to, but if you do, then we'll, we'll stop, but let's give it a try. And I still remember like, again, it was probably like nine years ago. And I was like, I have not had oatmeal forever. And this is fantastic. My life has been changed. Um, but we had to work through a lot of those habits and fears as well while I kept losing weight. And so it was during that first year when he said, let's set you a goal. How about you enter a powerlifting meet in that 165 pound class? So remember, my highest weight had been 265. He said, let's mm. enter you in the 165 class. It's going to be a great goal. Plus, you'll get to compete. It'll be fantastic. I said, there is no way that I can do a powerlifting meet. There is no way I can show up in public in a singlet. And all of this is just like too embarrassing. And, you know, and so he was like, pushed it a little bit more. And they said, okay, keep thinking about it. And within a couple months, I said, you know what? Why not? Like, I've already done a lot of crazy things that I, in this po- at this point that I never thought I would. Let's try it. So we set the goal. I made it. I weighed in in the 165 class. It was hard work, but it was fantastic for me to have that goal to work towards. And I actually did pretty well. So that was my first meet. And at that meet, it was a USPA meet. And so I qualified that meet for IPF Worlds and competed in that um, Worlds competition the following year. So um, at that point, I was totally hooked. And I was like, I love this. Like I said, you know, I was like, I'm pretty good at it. And it was just reinforcing some of the um, life changes that were really important to me. So I kept competing. And now here we are several years later. I've competed in the USAPL, been to Worlds a couple of times, um, finished in the top of my class each year, I guess six years now at their nationals. Um, And I'm also a... USAPL senior coach and have coached the world's master's team, assistant coach for the master's team a couple of times. And so, yeah, there we go. Weight loss, powerlifting, life change. (laughs) That is absolutely incredible. There's, there's like so much to unpack in like everything you just stated. One of, I want to take it back all the way to the beginning when you started though, because you painted such a vivid and like, uh, there's just a vivid picture of you kind of at the peak of your weight and the struggles that you faced. And I, it kind of put me back in my shoes as well. Um, I was a kid when I was at my heaviest, so it wasn't like, I don't think I faced as many barriers as you might have, but it was just an incredible vivid description of that. And I also want to take a minute to acknowledge the fact that, um, you stated you tried 
a lot of things to try to lose that weight that just didn't seem to work. And some reason, for some reason, some people in society have the idea that um, when people are obese or they're like heavily overweight, they're just not trying or they don't mm-hmm. care. And obviously you cared a lot. You were trying a lot. It just didn't work. And it took a while until you found what did work and eventually it came off. Yes. But I just want to acknowledge that because that's a super important point that a lot of people just don't care to realize. And either like um, it ends up becoming fat shaming to some extent or mm-hmm. however that goes down. But that was super important. Thank you for saying that. Good. No, and I'm I'm glad you brought that out because I totally agree. <laughs> you can imagine I get a little hot headed if I see comments on the Internet that allude to people like not knowing enough or not caring enough or not understanding enough. And the reality is, is that a a change like this that we're talking about is has so many layers to it and it's not simple. Um, I mean, there are some simple context com- components, but it's definitely not easy and there's just so many parts to it. So yeah, it's important. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. So I know you were mentioning that that kind of journey took place over what, like 13-ish years, correct? Was that the correct? Okay. So, and then within there, (laughs) obviously you would condense 13 years down into what, like (laughs) 10-ish minutes. Exactly. You mentioned, you mentioned a bunch of barriers that you faced and obviously you couldn't go into like um, details on them because (laughs) obviously 13 years, (laughs) that's not going to happen right now, but. One of the barriers that I want to bring up is that uh, there's still significant barriers for women when it comes to resistance training. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you see any of those? Did you experience them? And can you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Um, think, I like the way you made that really personal too. <laughs> um, yeah, I did experience them. And um, I think that that was one of the markers of, first of all, the CrossFit gym that I did end up joining. Uh, they really were committed to not having barriers to anyone, be it women or someone who was markedly, you know, had marked obesity like I did. Which is incredible. It's a great gym. I I know, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, like, I was thinking that when you were saying it. I mean, yeah. And I still have contact with some of those people regularly. And just, I thank them so much for like what they did and how committed they were. And then, you know, also in working with Jordan, not not having those barriers that were did exist in my own head, he didn't see those barriers. So I know that I have the benefit of working with a couple of groups of people that saw a lot more potential in me than I saw in myself. So that was definitely the first barrier that I had was my own failure, like the repeated failure that I had had through dieting. And I think that's super common for women in our culture because we do live in a big diet culture and we're just bombarded constantly with, you got to lose weight. Scale has to go down. You need to be smaller. You got to try the newest diet. And then they, they don't need to, or it doesn't work. And it just reinforces this cycle of I'm not enough. I'm not doing enough. There's something wrong with me. And that's very toxic. (laughs) Uh, and it's, it's, it, it exists for everyone. Like, I don't want to deny that for men either, but I do think that culturally right now where we are, it is still pro- more prominent for women. Um, gyms are often not super inclusive for women. There are some gyms that are, and I do, I'm super happy because I know confidently that it is changing, but because, um, 
historically, gyms, especially if we're talking about barbell training and that type of training, specifically not machines, not yoga class, not treadmills, um, Mm -hmm. but the actual barbell movements and heavier lifting and resistance training, it's not been as common for women to be in that place. And so because of that, there can be a really strong bro culture that can be, frankly, <laughs> anti-women, you know, and it yeah, can be in how definitely. people talk about it. Yeah, yeah. And and I this obviously matters a lot to me, but I do also truly understand that for a lot of people, they they need to understand it. They need to see it. It's Sometimes it's not even intentional. It's just what has been in place for too long. And so sometimes the way that people talk about lifting, the words that they use, the phrases that they use, um, and just even the kind of like the way that they think that women maybe shouldn't be there. And they think women shouldn't be there because they haven't been there and there just haven't been a lot there. Or there's misinformation. So there's both. You know, there's the lack of um, exposure, the lack of role models, the lack of female coaches. Um, and then there is misinformation and people talk about how li- women are a special population and they need to like, they can't lift heavy or we have to approach them like very delicately just because they're women. And, uh, you know, people will still perpetuate this idea that women can't start with the barbell. They need to start with preparatory programs. And that's just not true. And I definitely experienced some of that, not in the cross gym, fit gym, but in other places where it was like, well, you know, here, you can do these machines. And it was a prime example of someone who walked into a gym wanting change and wanting a challenge, but instead was given something very, very simple, too simple. Uh, Basically, you know, for my to use a phrase from one of my colleagues, uh, I was not loaded (laughs) properly as a woman at the beginning, (laughs) right? You know, like, um, when Claire talks about loading women and giving them that meaningful training stimulus, I definitely experienced the opposite of that, where it's like, just do something really easy and that's going to be enough. And that wasn't productive to elicit a change. So then you don't keep doing it because you're like, why am I going to go sit here on this machine and not see any difference? Um, Yeah. Uh, Other barriers. So I talked about role models, coaches, exposure. There's the bro gym environment. Um, There's the assumption that women can't lift, that they're too weak. Um, and then there is definitely the assumption that it's, even though I just, I don't understand why this is still the, the case. Like people assume it's uniquely dangerous for women to lift weights and it's not, you know, um, our yeah. organs normally do not fall out when we lift. I mean, you know, not to say that prolapse can't happen, but it can happen when you're not lifting yeah. weights either, you know, but the, the number of times that gets thrown out as soon as a woman starts doing something is really disappointing. You know, people will just immediately talk about how you're going to look horrible, you're going to bulk up, or your uterus is going to fall out. Well, no, probably not. <laughs> yeah. And once again, um, I think I've mentioned this previously on the podcast, but the Instagram page, You Look Like a Man, um, yes. <laughs> definitely highlights a lot of us. And I have always been aware of that page, but I never really followed it because um, I try to see more like inspiration, motivational type <laughs> content. But I recently just followed it just to see what, like, what is actually going on. And it is. Everything you're describing, I had no clue how prevalent it was. I knew it was there, but right. I feel like I've been fortunate enough to always go to very inclusive gyms, um, whether that's like the powerlifting gyms I go to or just maybe not even being aware of the situation when I was just starting training. That page definitely highlights it, and I can sympathize with you there now. 
And yeah. it seems like you're a trailblazer in this space. And you definitely are because we asked on our uh, Instagram page, who do you want on the podcast? And you were a top answer because of a lot of these <laughs> nice. things. You were breaking these barriers, you know, like getting in the gym, lifting, and not only lifting, but just like lifting heavy, going to the national team and doing all these incredible things. So thank you for that. You were definitely like the role model you were speaking about for a lot of other women out there. So I want to thank acknowledge you. that. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. And I definitely don't see myself as that. Although I will say that this last nationals kind of like started to change my mind a little bit when I realized I have been there a lot and I have been around long enough that, you know, um, yeah, it, it started to become a little bit clear, but yes, for sure. Like that experience of going into gyms and being the only women in the resistance training section. And, you know, when we talk about powerlifting, for sure, that's one of the things it did for me was it helped me to become physically stronger, but it also helped me to gain confidence in who I am and what I do. And that's one of the things that I want to help other people understand as well, you know, that um, I don't want anybody. And, and again, like I do want to understand, I've talked to plenty of men who feel like this as well. I don't want a man to go to a gym and feel out of place or not know what he's doing or, you know, men can be mistreated in gyms as well. And that bothers me just as much. It's not as prevalent, um, but it's just as bothersome. Yeah, definitely. I want to touch on one other thing you said and one barrier where earlier on in your story, you were mentioning how you kind of did not see any uh, motivation to keep going after you reach a certain point where you lose the weight and maybe come and then you're like, oh, I've done it or I've done some sort of progress and then it comes right back. And it wasn't until you started seeing that positive reinforcement of the weight on the bar continue to go up. Um, can you kind of speak about kind of finding those positive rewards or positive reinforcements that help you keep going? Because it seems like a lot of people get stuck in that cycle of like the reach the goal end it because they never find that thing that keeps pushing them. Yes. Yes. And that's, that's huge because we can have this surge of excitement at the beginning of something like this. And we can think, Oh yeah, this is fun. It's new. Um, I'm going to keep going. And um, so it, it depends on, where you are in your training and what your goals are exactly how we address this. But I think one of the first things is realizing that everybody's going to hit it and it's just that it's going to hit us at different times. And we, you know, I wrote recently in one of my Instagram posts, post nationals is this often happens to competitors too. Those of us who've now been around for a while joke about how the reason we win is we just stay in this longer than other people, right? We just don't give up. <laughs> um, so yeah. everybody faces it, like even competitors, because, you know, and so we can hit those barriers to ongoing work when number one, when it feels like it's too hard and it feels like it's too hard because we're no longer making the progress we thought we were. And so one of the things that I see as my role as a coach and then just as someone who's working with people um, just online in whatever capacity is to help them better assess what they're doing and what they could do and different ways to get there. Because unfortunately, so much of resistance training, exercise, strength training gets hyper-focused and when you get hyper-focused, you just miss so much. And you miss that mm -hmm. you are, in fact, making progress, but maybe the bar weight isn't going up as quickly as you want. Or you have made weight loss progress, and now maintaining for a little while is actually a new goal that's still rewarding, and we want to honor that. Um, 
you know, as you probably know, there's a big switch in moving from losing weight to not losing weight. <laughs> and <laughs> right? Switch. Yeah. And then yeah. understanding that that's still progress. And so that's a huge part of my job as a coach is helping anyone to recognize that it's not always one thing. There's not always one marker of success. And so how I work with people in that position, and I, was, I think one of the biggest ways I help someone in that situation is number one, in listening to them and making them talk. <laughs> and as someone who loves to talk um, and loves to converse with people, what I mean by that is having enough conversation with someone who's feeling that stuck position to get some feedback from them on what's what is it in their head that's causing them to feel that way? Why do they, they've put that barrier there, right? I don't think anybody else has most of the time. It's in our own mind. So I want to hear from them, like what is frustrating them? And that takes from a coaching perspective, that sometimes that takes quite a bit of talking and pushing back and saying, I know you didn't like the way the session went, or I know you feel like this didn't go well for the last three or four weeks, or this meet didn't go well, or this weigh-in didn't go well. So let's think about what do you think about that? Where, what are you comparing this to? Um, what other information are you taking in? And I can't get that information from most people like in one quick pass <laughs> because it takes a lot more thinking and conversation. So the first thing that I do is really just a lot of questions and conversation. And sometimes it takes quite a bit of back and forth uh, because then I can find out, do you actually have a resistance to training? Or most of the time, I think you have a little bit, you, we have more accurately call it an ambivalence to training, right? Because someone in that position knows they want to do it. They're interested in it. So they see the pros, but they also see some cons. And so they're like, yeah, I want it, but it's really hard or it's not feeling successful. And so as soon as I'm talking with somebody who has that ambivalence and they see the pros and the cons and they're weighing it, I know we're still in a great place because you still know the, the pros here, the positives to keeping going. And so what I need to do is help to correct those cons or those negatives. And that's what that conversation helps me to do is to switch them from too much focus on what seems hard, what they, it seems like they can't do, so that we can then switch it to this is what you can do, this is what you have done, these are the strengths you already have, these are the, these are the ways you've already demonstrated that you can do this. So we can take all of that and now we can say now very practically, because you know you can do it, you know you want to do it, it aligns with what you care about, what you value. Now as your coach, I can say, okay, so what changes can we make? And it might be changing the goalposts for a while. So if somebody has been training a lot, very similarly for a while, we'll shake it up so they don't have anything to compare their work to for a while, mm -hmm. right? New focus on something else. Um it might be giving them a totally new challenge. So if they've been training for powerlifting, maybe we take a break for meets for a while. And then maybe it's setting very specific goals, either process or outcome. You know, because sometimes people are really against outcome goals because they can be kind of difficult and detrimental, mm -hmm. but they can also be super helpful. Like, you know, me entering that meet at 165, like that was a defining outcome goal that also helped me to clarify a lot of my process goals. So I think there are benefits to both of those. So like I said, it's time, it's talking, it's seeing the pros and the cons so that I can push them out of that ambivalent stage into the now we're ready to make changes again. And I also like that you mentioned that it's not just about like powerlifting that we're thinking about. So if someone's like stuck on their training, they're not making progress and don't know what to do. 
you don't necessarily have to train powerlifting. <laughs> Maybe let's work towards <laughs> exactly. another goal. Maybe uh, your cardiovascular health isn't where it should be, or you could do something a little bit better, or you haven't focused on it a long time. Now switch to that. Yes. As a personal example, I mean, I'm still really, I, I also powerlift and I really enjoy it still, but I yeah. figured it's time to do something different. And I actually signed up for my first marathon in October. Um, I'm not a runner at any, like by any means, but I figured let's try a new challenge and see where it takes me. And then maybe yeah. it'll end up benefiting my powerlifting. Um, yeah. Just because, I don't know, I felt like I was ready for a change. So I like how you take that approach with your clients. And yeah. that was also a really good transition because I was just about to ask you about like the coaching aspect of breaking those barriers. Um, so you already answered that, but I wanted <laughs> to ask you, does that kind of change based on the level that the lifter is at or the client is at, for example, beginner, intermediate, advanced? Oh, good question. So yes, it does. And, um, you know, there's all these little inputs that happen, but I think one of the big changes that would happen in what I talked about versus where they are in their training history would be that if someone's a beginner, I want to see them exposed to a lot of different things, right? Reasonably, I guess, you know, moderate exposure, not like yeah. crazy, let's do everything under the sun. But I also don't want to like become too specific with a beginner in their training. So I like that balance. But I want that we have that time as a beginner to see lots of progress and get tons of positive feedback. So mm -hmm. as a coach, I can usually make small tweaks to keep things moving along, keep them seeing that progress, and to just reinforce the fact that they are indeed moving along. So with a beginner, it tends to be pretty straightforward, you know, whether they're training the first couple of meets, um, you know, whatever it is, their first marathon, as mm -hmm. much as it may suck, it's a PR, right? And you can be yeah. like, yes, you did it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so all of those things work. And then as someone moves up in, in their training history, it's often that middle world that becomes the most difficult to coach as far as barriers, because the quick new gains are gone and mm -hmm. things take more time, more effort, more changes to how you're doing things. And so a lot of the approach then is more um, altering the narrative with a client. So, you know, they may have built up some false expectations. They be, may be making comparisons to people that they shouldn't, that are not helpful. Um, mm -hmm. And so I get to work with them on how do you, how do I change your mind, help you change your mindset so that you better understand where you are, where you could be, what you have the ability to do. I want you to dream big. I want you to keep going, but I also want you to know that this has to be realistic so that you don't get discouraged. And I deal as a coach, I deal with that all the time. And, and it's totally natural. Like I compare myself to people as well. I, you know, get these big dreams. So I get why that happens. Um, but I get to help people kind of break that down a little bit, understand what's going on in their own training and their own progress so they can set those realistic expectations. And then when someone's advanced, um, a lot of times it's just so personal <laughs> at that point that it just becomes really, really like fine tuned and it can be um, very, very mental more than anything. Cause an mm -hmm. advanced trainee often knows quite a bit about their own lifting and what they're doing and what they're not doing and they can get in their own head. And so then I get to help them get out of it. <laughs> 
For sure. I want to ask you a question about the intermediate lifter because, uh, or intermediate client. And yeah. I don't know exactly like your portfolio of clients, like the spread of people who are actually competing in powerlifting and want to keep going versus like general health. But yeah, what's the difference between someone who maybe gets past that newbie or beginner point and then realizes maybe they don't want to compete. They just want to stay generally healthy. How do you kind of continue the reinforcement of keeping them there versus them just reverting and going back to nothing? Yeah. Good question. Yeah. And so I actually do have the pleasure of working with clients like across the spectrum and I love it. So I have clients who are totally new to lifting and, you know, like formalized exercise or anything like that to competitive athletes and all ages and everything in between. And when I started out, that was like very deliberately what I wanted to do as a coach is to work with all different kinds of Mm -hmm. populations. And so, yeah, it's, um, and if someone starts out thinking, here I am, I'm powerlifting, right? That's cool. So I'm going to train for that. It's ten, they, they can think very, very specifically. Um, and then they can get a little bit burned out because it's hard. <laughs> they go to a meet or two or they just train a little while and they realize things are slowing down, as we said. Mm-hmm. So then a lot of times the conversation comes it turns more towards what kind of things does this individual value, right? So what are their life style goals? What is their health goal? Like, how can we suss that out a little bit so that it's bigger than just powerlifting? And if it's, and if I can help them to understand that there are things that they can do that relate to what we've been doing might be a little bit different, but are still improving their overall health and wellness, then I think we have a pretty easy transition. Whereas Mm -hmm. if I just kind of let them stay in that mode of I'm lifting weights because my goal is to lift the heaviest possible. Those are the kind of people that if they are not a successful competitor, they tend to drop off. Mm-hmm. So in my experience, it's tying this to this is aligned with your goal, your desire as a person to be a healthy human being. And so then we can throw, we can use all kinds of things. Then it's just kind of like the door opens for me once a client understands that. And I can work on programming in all kinds of ways in order to keep mm. them moving in that regard. And I think that's important to note because uh, the overall goal as a coach, I guess, or someone who's trying to help someone get healthier is to keep them moving because any exercise is great exercise, <laughs> whether that takes the form of powerlifting, running a marathon, going for a walk, anything is good. So the last thing you kind of want is someone to kind of hit that wall of powerlifting and drop off and do nothing. So yes. being able to help reframe that and kind of get them towards the general health goal, quote unquote, is a lot better than them just falling <laughs> off. So absolutely yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. And it's huge because like, that just also reminds me too, that like one of the things I was thinking about is that life comes at us in really different ways too, right? Oh yeah. yeah, You know, I can get a client who can come to me and has certain goals at the beginning, but then life happens one way or another. And they realize that they don't have the time or the desire to devote as much to quote powerlifting as they did when they started. And so I want to be there to help them understand too, as you said, we want you moving. We want those phys- that physical activity to be a normal part of your life. And so if that means you get married, have your first kid, have your fifth kid, you know, change a job, go back to school, have a crisis in your life, whatever. Like one of the great things about having coached for this long now is I've been able to work with people through all kinds of different life experiences. And some of them, they're, it's, massive and it is hard and I want to be there to help them make that work the best that we can. And so it's me being understanding of that, but also helping them to realize they can, going back to what we said about medicine, what you said about Mm -hmm. medicine, they can do certain things to retain some control here, 
over their own health and well-being. And it may look really different for a while because it may be like, I've got to do enough activity to keep myself moving. It's going to help me with my stress. It's going to help me sleep better. And, you know, those are all going to kind of like give a, give a feedback loop to help me eating better and all of that during this really stressful time. And then I can come back to something later. So that is, again, like one of the great things about my job is I get to see people in a lot of different ways in life. Yeah. And putting an example to that, I want to like just real briefly, like when I entered medical school, I was already powerlifting and already done two meets and I thought I'd be able to continue doing that. And I took my first (laughs) test in medical school and I failed it. And I realized, okay, we need to change something here. So I started studying a lot more and obviously wasn't able to devote as much time to training and just doing all those kinds of things around powerlifting. So I didn't compete until the end of now that I'm graduating. I just competed right before essentially graduating. But I kind of pivoted. I always loved lifting. So I continued Mm -hmm. lifting, but it wasn't necessarily for quote unquote powerlifting. Instead of doing like the low bar squat, the deadlift and the bench, I started doing more dumbbell work, doing more like uh, high bar squats, just doing things to get me in and out of the gym a little bit quicker so that I could study more. However, I didn't kind of um, lose sight of that longer picture, which was good. I just knew I needed to pivot for that time. And then when I started getting more time at the end of medical school, once all like the hard work is out of the way, I was like, okay, (laughs) let's come back to it. And because I continued training and was able to pivot well and um, like continue still training and not just completely fall off, I ended up putting over 200 pounds on my total. That's throughout awesome. medical school, which is absolutely incredible to me. <laughs> yep, and now yep, I'm kind of like, pivoting to marathon yes. training because I don't know what residency is going to hold. I don't know if I can compete still right now, but I know I, I probably will have time to run. Um, we'll yeah. see how much I have time to run, <laughs> but we're going to try something new right now. Love it. That is fantastic. Congratulations too. Yeah. I thank love you. It. Yeah. And yeah. uh, now we're going to pivot into something a little bit different and that is cooking. And yes. we actually have never talked about cooking on this podcast. Okay. Although we are the preventive medicine podcast and food is obviously a huge <laughs> portion of kind of the spectrum of nutrition and wellness and whatnot. So one of the biggest questions I have and maybe one of the biggest misconceptions, I don't know if you can clarify this, is is cooking your own food a better option if you want to be healthier? Yeah. So cooking as opposed to like eating out and that eating kind of out thing. and doing all yeah. these things. Yeah. Yeah. That is a fantastic question. And it's it ha- like it has so many different layers to it. Right. So people generally think, OK, cooking food at home is better for you. It's going to be healthier. And the brief answer to that initially would like at a surface level would be yes, if you can do it, go for it. What makes this question and the answer a little bit more complicated is something, honestly, that I didn't realize earlier on and became much more aware of recently, and that is food privilege, right? And so we can, I don't want to assume, and I know that you would understand this, that everyone is in a position to do all of their cooking at home. And I fully like admit as someone who loves cooking, like that is how I would approach it. My answer would just be cook at home. It's fantastic. It's fun. You're going to love it. (laughs) Right. But that is so unrealistic for a lot of people. And we don't want those people to think that home cooking, meal prepping, the things you see on Instagram are the only way for you to have a healthy diet. That is not true. Right. Yes. And so I, again, I love cooking at home and I think there's so many benefits to it, um, but it is certainly not the only way to be healthy. Um, there are so many things you can do, you know, just even, 
even myself, like I can take short stints where I don't do much cooking at home. Um, you can eat well. You not, I mean, that's a little bit of a stretch. I, I don't know if I can really say that I can eat well from a gas station, but you can make good food choices from a gas station. You can station. make do, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, while I, even while I was at nationals, I got several of my meals from the Seven Eleven that was in walking distance <laughs> of my hotel and I was totally fine. Right. Um, and it was in Daytona Beach, so I was hanging out at 7-Eleven with a great crowd, trust me. <laughs> um, but um, uh, but so you, there are so many options. But yes, so all that to say, cooking at home is a great option, but it is definitely not the only way. And I like how you acknowledge that people always see these posts on Instagram that you, if you're trying to get healthy, you have to meal prep. And people are like, uh, yeah, I'll try to get healthier, but I'll do it when I can meal prep. And I don't have time right now. I have to eat out, whatnot. So I can't really focus on being healthy. I have to wait until I can meal prep so I can start cooking meals at home. And it's very important to acknowledge that that's not necessarily true. Um, There's obviously some benefits to cooking at home because you get a little bit maybe more control over what you're putting in your body, how those foods are prepared. But as you were stating, you can make do with kind of gas station foods or whatever (laughs) you need to. It's just kind of figuring out how to do that, which we've talked about in other episodes. And I think in our episode with uh, Dr. Jesse Hoffman, we talked a little bit more about that and kind of constructing a diet when you're not always available to make foods from home or cook or whatnot. So just wanted to throw that out there as well. Yeah, perfect. And then another question from there is, say, let's say someone does want to cook at home and they're really motivated to do so, but they don't have the time, but they still really want to. How do you make it more convenient? Yeah. So first category of making cooking at home convenient would be the things you learn how to do. So your cooking skills. And um, I know that sometimes people who follow me probably think I'm sounding like a broken record, but things like understanding knife skills and the basics of food science. I cannot stress those enough if you want to learn how to cook quickly and well at home. So like, for example, this weekend, I just taught an online class on meal prep. And so we, it it hinges upon a number of ideas. And one of them is knife skills. One of them is principles of cooking that you can learn and understand to better prepare your food. And then the other one is learning how to order your time. So what we would call in cooking your mise en place or how you order your cooking and your space. And that sounds kind of like big and complicated, but it's not really. Um, And so a little bit of investment in those three areas of skills really, really pay off. And then another way that you can really save time is you can take advantage of some prepared food that you use in your own cooking. And that's another mistake that some people make is they're like, well, when Leah says eat whole food, more whole foods, or I know Leah really likes healthy cooking. So that must mean that she only wants me to buy everything fresh. And then I need to cut it and prepare it and butcher it and everything (laughs) all myself, because that's going to be the very best. And while I might like that, and Derek Barbell Medicine might like that, right? We have that like special passion and time. We'll do that. And, but it is frozen vegetables are fantastic. Sometimes they're even better than fresh vegetables. Canned vegetables can be great. I try to convince people all the time if you want the best tomatoes, you probably want to buy canned tomatoes, not fresh tomatoes most time of the year, right? So you, we shouldn't look down on those things. We should not um, food shame 
That's another like horrible idea that goes around yeah. on social media is food shaming. We shouldn't do that. Um, you know, like cereal is great when you're like, I don't have time for carbs. <laughs> well, then eat some cereal, right? I've and been then- eating a lot of cereal for these runs right now. It's really <laughs> exactly, easy. Exactly, right? And then you can microwave yourself some vegetables or you can roast them and you can get an air fryer. Like there's a lot of different options, but it's finding those like like shortcuts and it's mainly skills on the one hand, but then it's also taking advantage of those other like faster things. And if you have things like a Trader Joe's, for example, like use Trader Joe's to its full benefit. Yes. (laughs) One of my favorite stores out there. Exactly. Right. It's a great price. You can find fantastic food that's partially or fully prepped. You just got to use it pretty quickly when it's prepped, but you know, otherwise (laughs) it's great. (laughs) You know, don't leave it around. Um, Yeah. So those, that would be, that would be my big, big categories of advice there. I don't want you to spill your secret sauce, but one of the things that you mentioned was uh, kind of those food principles and whatever you feel comfortable sharing. I know you just had a class on this or obviously selling something here, but what do you feel comfortable sharing about those basic food principles? Yeah. So a lot of the things that I talk about uh, center around um, one, one big area that I center around would be methods of cooking. I think that if you can understand how foods are cooked um, in different methods, you, the world is open to you as far as food goes. And so that would be a a concrete example of that would be one that I talk about a lot. And so people on Instagram kind of make fun of me sometimes with my love of roasting things, because I think roasting is a fantastic method of cooking, but it's also one that's super misunderstood and misapplied. And so uh, an area where I think once people understand the science of cooking, they understand how to roast things. And so that would mean something like roasting something by definition, as a method of cooking is used at, it's a way to cook that food, vegetable or meat, usually in a manner that caramelizes or brings about the Maillard reaction on that food. So you need several things to happen in order, if that's your end goal, right? If that's what roasting is compared <laughs> to any other kind of cooking, right? Compared to steaming, which mushes it, right? So yeah. the roasting gets that crustiness, which is, comes from caramelization and the Maillard reaction. That happens when you understand that you have to have high heat, you have to have low water, so you don't want to put something into that high heat that has Mm -hmm. a lot of water on it, and you also don't want to crowd your food, because if you crowd your food and you stick it in the oven, that it hits the heat and it immediately creates steam, and you're essentially steaming your vegetables instead of roasting them. So if you understand the end product, and then you understand the science of how that happens, you stop making mistakes in your cooking because you've got it all figured out. So that would be and, like a concrete example. And I can say roasting vegetables was uh, when I started roasting like carrots and Brussels sprouts, <laughs> those two yeah. specifically, which taste incredible. It was such an easy way to get vegetables in my diet where you don't even have to do that much prep. You kind of just like real quick toss things together, toss in the oven, and then you're done. That's exactly. It. It's a fantastic right? way to get vegetables done. It tastes great. I tell you, I, I don't really like Brussels sprouts unless they're roasted or maybe like yes. shaved in a salad, but that was yes. a great way to do it. And then caramelized uh, <laughs> carrots. Sorry, I'm getting a little bit into the weeds. They're no, like my own experience, yeah. but yeah. caramelized carrots are also fantastic. It was so good. Exactly. See, and I agree. You've named things I love and try to convince people <laughs> to love, right? Because it's so important. You can go for a long time thinking, I don't really like vegetables, or I've had this, I've had that, I don't like it. And it may be that you don't understand enough about cooking and food to like it. And um, another part of that would be that I always encourage people who are trying to learn this 
if they can, to go to a farmer's market a couple of times, because that's another way to learn a lot more about food and to be able to buy it at its freshest. And if you buy it at its freshest, you're going to be able to taste it as it should taste versus how it's going to taste like six months later in the grocery store. So that would be another like idea. Yeah. And one of, one of the other themes that comes up here, I guess, for uh, in efforts to get to people to eat more vegetables is yes. sometimes people don't know how to eat vegetables and they just think, oh, I don't like carrots because all they know is like the salad packs. We have like the ranch, the raw yes. carrots, you dip the baby <laughs> carrots in. Like, yeah, I don't like carrots. I don't like Brussels sprouts. Maybe you haven't tried a new way to cook it. For example, roasting it because yes. caramelized carrots are very different than having <laughs> carrots raw with ranch. So yep. um, people experimenting with cooking in that is definitely a good way to start getting more vegetables in as well because suddenly they start tasting good and um i don't i don't want to speak bad about anyone's (laughs) mothers or parents or whatnot but sometimes when people grow up they don't have food prepared the way it should be or like Mm -hmm. well so that it's tasty so some experimentation with cooking at home can open up a whole new world of vegetables yeah definitely and your taste can change as well that's another thing i try to convince people i do to make people understand and for some reason we tend to think that our food Tastes can't change, which is utterly ridiculous when we think about who we are as people and how we change. <laughs> like we learn and change and appreciate or understand lots of different things throughout our life. And the same thing happens with food. So if you're thinking, I don't like any vegetables or I only like one or two, that might be the case now. But yes, to your point, you can learn more about them. You can learn how to cook them. They will taste different, but you can also learn how to like them and you can be an adult and you can try more vegetables. And sometimes I'll have clients just choose one or two at a time. And, you know, because it can be a little bit overwhelming. And I've worked with clients who have all kinds of experience, as you mentioned, with their food histories. I've had clients who've gone to the grocery store and not known, like, which potato to buy, because they've never gone to purchase a potato. So they go the first mm-hmm. time, and I forgot that they've never purchased one. And so they don't know what a difference between these <laughs> ones are, right? <laughs> and so, you know, so so then we start with that and we go, well, why don't you try this one and this one and this one this week? And this is how I want you to cook them. And then we're going to see, what do you like? And then you can keep trying those. And then in a few weeks later, then I'll have a client try a new vegetable and I'll say, well, okay, so now you're eating carrots and zucchini and broccoli and Brussels sprouts. That's fantastic. Go to the grocery store. What do you want to try this time? And then we figure out how to add it. If you are at home intrigued listening to this and trying to like expand your scope and you just really want to learn more, I believe Leah has a link in her on her Instagram page where she has a cooking class. So her Instagram is uh, Leah, L-E-A-H underscore Barbara Medicine. Go click on that link and see if you can expand your food scope, learn new things, exactly what we're talking about. But as we wrap up this episode, we want one classic last question that we always ask, which is if you're at a coffee shop and someone comes up to you and recognizes you and asks you, how do I get healthy? What do you tell them in the two minutes that you're waiting for your coffee? So I would actually answer them, not with a complete answer, but I would ask, I would first ask a question. Flip the tables <laughs> right away. Yep. <laughs> um, and so my question to them would be, what does it, what does being healthy mean to you? And what would you like to change in your life? Because once I can get someone talking about those two things, what does being healthy mean to you? And what do you want to change? What are you thinking about changing now? Then I can have hopefully the most meaningful two-minute conversation that is possible because we've made an instant connection on where their thinking already is and I can help them out. 
So said like a true coach. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. You're I welcome. thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. You touched on a lot of things that are both personal to me and also new to this podcast, such as cooking, the mired reaction, which no one has ever <laughs> talked about on this podcast ever. So thanks for introducing that. <laughs> Definitely. I loved it. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. Yeah. Take care. Thank you. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.